Luke chapter 13. We're going to finish Luke 13 today and then we are leaving Luke for the summer. Luke's going to Newcastle and we're going to the Psalms for the summertime. And we'll be in the Psalms with lots of different tablers uh, sharing. Oh, that would have been loud. Lots of different tablers sharing uh, a Psalm uh, over the summer months. And that'll give you something completely different to enjoy. Let's read from Luke 13. And verse 10, I'll I'll read the first uh, seven or eight verses just of this passage and then we will pick up some more as we go through. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, He called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. Previously in Luke, we have seen Jesus in chapter 12 and the start of chapter 13 speaking of division. The fact that he did not come to bring peace, but he is going to create two groups of people who are divided. And he used the illustration last week in the the passage of families divided where some have chosen to follow him and some have not. He has spoken much about urgency, and that's going to continue today. He's spoken about the urgency of repentance that we looked at last week. The urgency of understanding the times that the people were living in. And then last week he closed with a little parable of the tree that should be bearing fruit. And the the owner of the vineyard was going to come and just say, cut it down And the gardener says, no, leave it. Give me a bit more time with it to work it, to fertilize it and see if it produces fruit. And again, you know, in Luke, sometimes at a glance, things can seem disjointed and it just looks like, well, there's a story and there's a story. But there is a continuity and there is a sense of those same themes coming out in the, the, the passages we'll look at today. The first is this woman who is spiritually caused to have a physical affliction. She is bent over, crippled by a spirit for 18 years, bent over and could not straighten up. So whatever way this was physically affecting her back, she was constantly stooped over looking at the ground. Um, And Jesus makes it very clear, very clear, that this particular condition in this particular woman, was caused by a spirit. 
In fact, he specifically mentions Satan in verse 16. He says, Satan has kept her bound. So there is definitely the possibility that physical conditions can be caused by unclean spirits, but not all of them. Okay, so Jesus leaves that, that that is a possibility, but we're not to conclude that every physical infirmity is is caused by spirits. And Spurgeon, who is just an absolute master with words, he, he paints what this woman's life is like. And I think it's really, really powerful. Let me read it to you. For 18 years, remember, she's, she's bent over. Whatever's wrong with her spine, she cannot stand up straight. She's just bent over, facing the ground all the time. For 18 years, she had not gazed upon the sun. Yesterday, out in the garden, Spurgeon didn't write this, but yesterday, out in the garden, um, in the afternoon, I had just finished doing a few things, and I just sat down with a cold drink for for five minutes, and and I lifted my face and just felt the heat of the sun on my face. I I love it. It revives me compared to the dark days of winter. I love feeling the warmth of it. For 18 years, she had not gazed upon the sun. She hadn't felt that. For 18 years, no star of night had gladdened her eye. Her face was drawn downward toward the dust and all the light of her life was dim. Now listen to this. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave. And I, would, I do not doubt she often felt that it would have been gladness to have found one. I think that's brilliant. He pictures this woman stooped over face towards the ground. And he says she's like one walking around just looking for a grave. And you think about humanity in general. You think about the lost the broken, the tormented, the afflicted, those whose heads hang low, who we rub shoulders with every day, no matter what job we do or where we go. And that picture of people who, spiritually speaking, maybe not physically, but spiritually speaking, Satan has them bent over, walking around, looking for a grave. Powerful, powerful image from from Spurgeon. And Jesus comes along and he puts his hand on her and speaks to her and and he heals her. And that would have been awesome if it hadn't been on the Sabbath, okay? So everybody, or not everybody, but the synagogue leader starts giving off about the fact that, that this healing has taken place on the Sabbath day. Now, you may find this familiar. And I know we've, we've stretched Luke out over a long period, so you may not find it familiar, but this has happened before. It happened back in Luke chapter 6, and this is one of the things that your, your biblical writers want you to see. When, whenever something's happened that's happened before, you're to stop and you're to think. That sounds familiar. What, what, why, why is he telling us the same story again? One commentator, a guy called Daryl Bach, refers to these as mirror miracles. Mirror miracles. And as I I first read that, I thought, imagine if you had a mirror miracle in the morning and you got up and looked in the mirror and you looked awesome first thing in the morning. That would be a mirror miracle. But that's not what he means. What he means here is whenever you're seeing something in Luke that is almost identical to something that you've seen before. And back in Luke chapter 6, there was a guy in the synagogue who had a withered hand. 
and Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. And the ones who were present, the synagogue leaders, were vexed about, about Jesus doing this. And the point I think that Jesus is trying to make here, the point Luke's trying to make is, have you learned anything in the in-between period? I did this before. You responded badly. I have spent a period of time teaching you, moving in your midst, performing miracles, blessing you. And now I'm going to do the same thing again and see if your response is any different. It's that whole thing with the fig tree from last week where the gardener says, no, don't cut it down yet. I know it has failed to bear fruit. I know these people have failed to respond to me the way I wanted them to. I know they've criticized me for doing God's work of restoration on the Sabbath day. I know all that, but don't cut it down yet. Let me work on it and give them another chance to bear fruit. So what you're seeing here is the outworking of that little parable from last week. Have you ever had the the joy of repeating a test in school? In, uh, in the chemistry department, Port Dan College, we have this thing called Topic 5. Topic 5 is the point that in GCSE, in Year 11, Unit 1 Chemistry, the wheels come off the wagon. Right? Topics 1, 2, 3, and 4, they're okay. They're not too bad, and the kids are okay with them, and they're sort of floating in around 80% in their tests. Then there's Topic 5. <laughs> and when they do Topic 5, the 80, 90 percenters, a lot of them suddenly become 50 and 60 percenters because topic five is really, really tricky. And therefore, in in recent years, uh, I have introduced a concept called the grace test, the grace test. And what the grace test is, so they do their test on topic five, they royally mess it up. And then I say to them, right, I'm not going to make you do the same, you know, I'm not going to give you the same sheet of paper with the same questions. I've rewritten another test called the grace test. I'm going to correct everything that you got wrong and I'm going to get you to come in at lunchtime and do the grace test. And if you got like 50% in the first one and then you get 80% in the second one, we'll keep the 80 because that's grace. Okay? So we do that with them and they get a chance to do the test twice with, with that learning, that instruction and hopefully that progression in the middle if it goes the other way, you're in trouble. You know, if they get like 60 the first time and 40 the second time, you know, you're doomed. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He has given the people, and this is what God did in the wilderness with Israel. He tests the people. They fail. He instructs them and he tests them again to see have they learned anything. And the, the, the synagogue leader here shows that he has not learned anything since the last time Jesus performed a miracle like this. He complains that Jesus has violated the Sabbath. In fact, he's a wee bit spineless because he doesn't speak to Jesus. Jesus heals the woman and the synagogue leader then addresses the people in the synagogue with Jesus still there instead of talking directly to Jesus. And he hasn't learned anything. And he shows, Jesus calls him out on it in verse 15, the fact that they show more compassion for their animals than they do for people. And as I, as I was thinking about this, I thought about, there's a wee song I listened to at Christmas time by Casting Crowns uh, about um, 
how, how this little town of Bethlehem was asleep and missed the fact that their Savior had been born. And it goes on like that. And then he addresses America. And, and the line <clears throat> towards the end is, as we are sung to sleep by philosophies that save the trees and kill the children. Now, we're supposed to look after the environment. But if we're looking after the environment more than we're looking after the unborn in the womb, then we're not doing a great job. And these people in the synagogue, Jesus says, they're, they're more concerned about their animals than they are about human beings who, who need restoration. And Sabbath is the day then. What better day could there be? Sabbath, the day when God finished his work of creation and rested. What better day for this woman to be healed and for Satan's power to be overthrown? They've received instruction. They've got to sit the test again and they've failed it again. So take it out of that context and apply it to our own hearts. As we walk with, with God, do you find yourself facing Similar situations to ones that you maybe faced six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, and you think, I reacted badly back then. I didn't glorify God in my response to that. I didn't do that well. But in between, I've walked with Jesus and I've learned and I've listened and I've been changed and I'm facing a similar thing, but I'm going to face it differently because I've learned my lesson. He's so gracious. You're the tree. I'm the tree. He's the gardener. And he's constantly creating conditions for the tree to bear fruit and giving it opportunity to bear fruit. But there is a limitation to that, as we saw last week. He said about the tree, he said, just give it one more year. One more year. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then you can cut it down. And another theme that's in this passage is the fact that Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of darkness are at odds. They are at conflict. This is something that we've seen again as we've come through Luke in, in 10, 18. Jesus says to the disciples returning from mission, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This idea of conflict between the two kingdoms. And as Jesus heals this woman, you can see the kingdom of Satan is collapsing. His hold and his grip on people is falling apart as Jesus' kingdom progresses. And Luke uses the language of setting free. He talks about Jesus setting the woman free, which is what he declared back in Luke 4 that he would do. As he quoted Isaiah, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to set the oppressed free. As Jesus is making this journey to Jerusalem, he has taken many people who are bent over, brought low. For that woman, it was physical. For many human beings, it is more than physical it is emotional it is spiritual bent over and brought low and as jesus touches them they straighten up and they praise god and the the story ends with division again last week jesus said i didn't come to bring peace but division and you can see the division in verse 17 that the synagogue leader and those who were opposing jesus are humiliated but the other people who are there are delighted and they're praising god and you're getting this division between the two groups of people. Jesus goes on then to address how the kingdom comes. The Jews wanted the kingdom to come all at once. They wanted the kingdom to come Freddie Mercury style. I want it all and I want it now. They wanted the full package to all arrive at once. 
I send videos <coughs> to kids in school uh, if they've missed class or if I'm trying to help them revise. And they have this wonderful facility to, to move the slider and make me talk at double speed. <laughs> and sometimes on a Sunday morning, you wish you could do that. <laughs> we, we love to speed things up. We love to just get it, get it over faster, get it done quicker. We want it all at once. We don't like slowing down and allowing God to do his slow work. And Jesus tells two parables of how the kingdom comes. And they're both about small things and slow progress. The first one is a seed in verses 18 and 19, a mustard seed. That's what the kingdom of God is like, tiny, tiny little seed. And you plant it and you, like any seed, you know, I'm sure lots of you have the experience of planting seeds and then the joy of seeing a seedling and then seeing it grow and, and that whole process. But it takes time and it can be frustrating and you want to speed it up, but you can't speed it up. You can't speed it up. The kingdom of God is like that. It is a small seed planted in a heart of an individual planted in a community, in a town, planted in the world by God that gradually over a long period grows. It grows into a tree that's, that's so big that the birds can come and find shelter and shade and protection. But it's a slow process. You don't transplant trees. You don't just rock up with a tree. Well, you probably do, actually, with, with enough money and machinery. But in Jesus' time, you didn't rock up with a tree on the back of a flatbed lorry and, and, and dig a massive hole and stick it in the ground. You had to put in a seed and you had to wait. And you had to wait and you had to wait. And it's like that with God's kingdom in our lives. The second picture that Jesus uses is one of yeast which again is small, so small. But once the yeast is in the dough, it's not coming out. It's going to do its thing. And we talked about yeast before in Luke and, and the frustration of somebody is making bread at home. If it's bread with yeast in it, it takes so long. <laughs> you know, you're like, I'm going to make some bread and that's great. And like four hours later, your tongue is hanging out. and You're like, when are we going to get this bread? Because you're waiting for the yeast to do its thing. To prove and to expand and, to, and to, to ferment inside the dough. And the kingdom of God is like that. 60 pounds of flour in verses 20 and 21. That's about 25 kilos. That's a lot of bread. Okay. That's a lot of bread. And a little tiny bit of yeast goes in there. And over time, and you've got to give it time. If you try to rush it, you wreck it. Over time, that yeast will spread throughout the whole loaf. And its influence is initially invisible. You cannot see what it's doing or how it's working. But over time, you can see the change that it brings. And Jesus wants his hearers to trust that although something starts small, if you give it time, it will grow in influence. It will grow in size. The kingdom of God will change what is going on around it. He's, you know, he's got 12 disciples walking with him, heading to Jerusalem with warnings coming along the road that he is going to suffer when he gets there. And he keeps on telling them. And they probably look at themselves and think, Flip, there's only 12 of us. How are we going to do anything? And by the time of his resurrection, there's about 500 
and then it just grows and grows and grows and grows and now there are billions of people on earth who follow Jesus. That's the yeast, that's the seed. But I think we can also apply that to our own hearts. Once the yeast of the kingdom of God gets into the the flower of my heart, there's a long process starts of change, transformation, growth. Sometimes you'd love to accelerate it. Sometimes others would love to accelerate it in you. <laughs> you know, they can see the change and they're like, yeah, I just wish that would happen a bit quicker. But you can't. Eugene Peterson sums it up brilliantly with the title of his book on the, the Psalms of Ascent. It's a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life, the journey of discipleship, the yeast and the seed, growing and transforming God's people. The next picture is, an, is another parable where a guy comes up to Jesus on the journey and says, are only a few people going to be saved? Again, the numbers are small. He's just heard these two parables about the kingdom, the, the smallness of it at, its, at the start of it. And he comes and asks Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus doesn't answer the question of numbers. It's not so much how many will be saved. It's more a case of some people are not going to be there who you might expect to be there. That's the shock and awe of, of what Jesus says. He says to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. His response is not about numbers. His response is that there will be many who think they'll be there and they won't. It's another stinger of a message from the middle of Luke. And he says to the people, make every effort. Now, make every effort does not mean you work to achieve God's favor. Salvation is a free offer, grace. Jesus has paid the price for our sins and offered us forgiveness and offered us his spirit and offered us access to God the Father. That is not something that we can earn in any way. But Jesus says here about making every effort to get through that narrow door. He didn't say make every effort to open the door. The door's open. God opens it. It opens from his side. He has done everything to throw the door open and make the way available for people to come in. But he then challenges people, you've got to make the effort to go through the door. And I think there he's talking about obedience and he's talking about faithful trust. He's talking about repentance. This has come up again and again this past while. The need to repent. That is the only way through the door. <laughs> the only way. And that, that phrase, make every effort, I'm not going to try to pronounce that Greek word because that bit at the end, I think I would start spitting involuntarily on people if I tried to get my tongue around it. But you can see what English word we get from it agonize, <laughs> strive, give it all you've got and make sure you get through that narrow door. Don't make sure you open it or blow it open or kick it open. It's open. He says, make every effort to get through it. 
The door is narrow, which would suggest that there may be fewer there than you would expect getting through it. In Matthew's version, on, on a different occasion, maybe Jesus talked about a narrow road, a broad road, narrow gate. The door is narrow, and the door is only open for a short time. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. That terrifies me. That, you know, this is not Jesus trying to scare people into a response. This is him trying to get us to realize the gravity of what we're dealing with here. I can still remember early December 1998. It was a Thursday night. I was in a hall in Lockall and I had just listened to a guy called Leslie Brush preaching the gospel at a little mission. And that night he preached from Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the parable of the 10 virgins or the 10 bridesmaids, five of whom had lamps with oil in them and extra oil, all they needed, and five who did not. And the, the, the bridegroom was later returning than they expected. And when he came, the ones who were ready in verse 10 of Matthew 25 went in with them into the banquet and the door was shut. The other five who had gone to buy extra oil because they ran out, they came and they said, Sir, open the door for us. And he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I still remember I could walk. Well, the building was burnt down since then. But if it was still there, I could walk in. I could show you the seat. I could show you the floorboard probably that my feet were on. God just got me. <laughs> he got me big time with that picture of the door closed and the repeated offers of grace and invitation finally over. And I was quaking. <laughs> I was under conviction of the Holy Spirit that I needed to respond. The door is only open for a short time. Just picture that. Picture that, and I'm sure, you know, the, the vast majority have, have gone through the door and are singing and dancing on the other side. But on the off chance that someone's not sure or that someone's maybe listening at a later stage online, make every effort. Repent. Get through the open door. They then appeal to him. You just picture it again, banging on the door, realizing the day of grace for them. For, for Israel, again, this was an advance of AD 70 that I mentioned again this past couple of weeks when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem. This is them being warned, your days are numbered, Israel. You need to respond. But it applies to all of us. The door's only open for a short time. Picture that horrendous scene, banging on the door and realizing it's shut and it's staying shut. He will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then the appeal starts. You will say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. And it's even clearer in Matthew chapter 7 that that appeal, the people come and they say, hang on, we, we prophesied in your name. 
Get that door open. We have prophesied. We have cast out demons and performed miracles in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. And the door stays shut. And it's terrifying how close people can get to church, to the door, to Jesus. But they, again, like last week, refuse to just repent and go through. And there's so many people like that. And they go to church and they they give generously and they work hard and they're honest people and they send their kids to Sunday school and they do lots of stuff, good stuff, but won't repent. And those who try to get in late, they're, they're, they're just told you've missed it. The door is closed. See, superficial contact with Jesus counts for nothing. Counts for nothing when the door closes. They have seen Jesus. They've been physically close to him. They were maybe never hostile towards him. They maybe thought they were sitting on the fence, but there is no fence. There is no fence. There is a door that, as far as we're concerned right now, is currently open. It is a narrow door. And they did not, in this case, respond in repentance and faith. And the end result is is weeping and gnashing of teeth, kind of like being a Liverpool fan on the last day of the season. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Cast out. They thought that because they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they automatically had a seat at the table, and they should have. But Jesus says, no, you're you're being cast out, and others are going to come in. The Gentiles and others are going to come in. Now, of course, many Jews did follow Jesus, but many did not. You can be so close to the promise and the invitation of God and yet miss it. And he finishes the the passage, finishes the chapter with a a brief exchange with the Pharisees. And something I never noticed before, and I haven't looked at it in detail, but but Daryl Bach, as I was reading him this week, I think it was him saying that the Pharisees themselves weren't directly involved in Jesus' crucifixion. Other religious leaders were, Sadducees and various other ones, and obviously Pilate, But this guy made the point that the Pharisees, who were thorn in Jesus' side the whole way, they they didn't actually actively participate in that last few days of Jesus' life before his execution. I would need to look into that more, but I thought it was really interesting. Pharisees come to him in verse 31, and they say, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. You ever had someone who appeals to be or appears to be looking out for your best interests, but they're not really? <laughs> the Pharisees want rid of Jesus. And they probably think, here's a handy way just to get this guy to shut up and go home. We'll tell him that his life is under threat and maybe he'll just fade off into the background again out of the road. That, that's what they want him to do. And I love Jesus' response. It's one of my favorite moments in all of the Gospels. Go tell that fox. <laughs> Jesus calls him a name. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and this is not sort of you, you, you now getting a, a license or me getting a license to slander people <laughs> and call them names and say, oh, that person's this and that person's that. But Jesus is not afraid to call Herod out on who he actually is. 
And a fox, we know foxes, you know, first and foremost as being sort of, you know, relatively cute. And you might see one early in the morning. Um, and then we think, no, they're quite cunning. And, and foxes are known for their cunning and their slyness. In the Bible, foxes are known for destroying things. When you look up foxes in the Old Testament, they're usually involved in destruction. For example, in Songs of Solomon, the, the little foxes are going into the vineyards and, and destroying the vines. And other passages like that where you find foxes destroying things. And Herod is a destroyer. Herod is going to attempt to destroy Jesus, to destroy the church and to bring an end to what he's doing. But Jesus will not quit. He says, you go tell that fox. You go tell him that I'm going to keep on healing. I'm going to keep on casting out demons. I'm going to keep on doing what I have come to do. And I won't stop in the face of death threats. And he then goes into Old Testament prophet mode and laments over Jerusalem. He uses that beautiful image, and I'm sure you've read books about it and heard stories about it, where a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And there's, there's, a, there's a book about, <clears throat> about a hen, you know, and there's a fire on the farm or something. It's like a kid's book tells this story. And, uh, and this hen sort of gathers the, the chicks and spreads the wings out over the chicks and the next day the farmer goes out and finds that the hen's dead and charred by the fire but but when he pulls it away the little chicks are safe underneath that's the picture that Jesus is using here God is coming to Israel and fire is coming to Israel the fire that's coming is the fire of the Romans who are going to burn Jerusalem and God says I want to bring you under my wing I want to protect you Even after all of these warnings, even after all of this rejection, there is still grace for them. But he says, your house is left to you desolate. That's exile talk. That's like in Babylon, whenever the temple was left empty and the people were sent to Babylon. Jeremiah talks about it in Jeremiah 12 and also chapter 22. I will forsake my house. This palace will become a ruin. And Jesus is, is referring to that as he basically says to the, to the nation that, that, that their time is up. There's an urgency. Last week, there was an urgency about repentance. There was, the week before, there was an urgency about watching for the return of the Lord. There, three weeks in a row, urgency. Anyone listening here or online and just need to respond in the urgency. The narrow door won't stay open forever. And the tragic thing here is, as we read on in Luke, at this moment, Jesus is done with Israel. These past couple of chapters, difficult ground. You've done well to stick with it. He has been addressing Israel in light of the judgment that is coming on them. We've pulled out as much application as we can for ourselves. But now at this point, he's done. And for the rest of the Gospel of Luke, nearly all of his focus is on his disciples. Teaching them, preparing them for what's going to happen to him. Preparing them for what they're going to do after what happens to him. That's where he shifts his focus to. The nation has rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And you know what? God is really polite. If people don't want him, he says, that's fine, I'm done, I'm gone sometimes referred to as the dread release in Romans 1, where he gives them over to their sin. And they say, we don't want you. And he's like, that's fine. You can have what you want. Let's just recap in reverse. 
This, this door, he's talked about a door. Seeing the door is not enough. Hanging around the door is not enough. Here's the daft picture came into my mind earlier this morning. Whenever you played musical chairs as a child, <laughs> or whenever you played TIG in the playground, did you ever sort of, as you're playing musical chair, you're keeping your eye on a chair, and you're like, that's my chair. When these beats stop, my butt and that chair are going to meet at high speed, and I am going to be safe. Or you're playing Tig in the playground and you're just staying close enough. I remember playing Tig in the garden with these scamps when they were wee. And they would just hover close enough to Den. <laughs> Whatever Den was. And, and then whenever they need to, bang, they can grab for safety. But sometimes underestimated how fast their old man was. But do we do that with the door? There's a narrow door. The narrow door is open. I think a lot of people hang around church and they just, every now and again, a wee glance. Ah, there's the door there. Yeah, still open. I can still see it. I can still get to it. I'm close to it. And hoping that when the music stops, they'll make it. <laughs> That's a dangerous way to live. To hang around the door. To hang around that chair waiting for the music to stop. To hang around near Dan, hoping that the old guy isn't quick <laughs> don't do that don't week after week look at the door and think I'm still open I'm okay dangerous way to live back up further we had the seed and the yeast the growth of the kingdom of God being slow small beginnings but calling for faithful obedience just to keep on is one of the things that was prophetically shared with us a couple of months ago. Just keep on being faithful. You have been faithful. Well done. Keep on doing the stuff of faithfulness in the church. And then back to that, that first picture. And I want to leave you with the words of Spurgeon again because it really affected me. The picture of this woman. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave. Can you think of anyone like that? I can think of a whole lot of people who just walk about and the heads down, spiritually speaking, all the time. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave. And I do not doubt she often felt that it would have been gladness to have found one. We are to be Jesus to those people who throughout life are walking with their head their body bent low, their head facing downwards, searching for a grave. Jesus calls us to be his voice to them and to be his hands to them so that they can straighten up and praise God. And I remember the first time Linda and I prayed on the street in Tandragee, seeing a very, very clear vision of a man standing with his head hanging low. And I remember pondering it and praying over it and thinking, that man represents Tandrigi. He's become, in my I can still see him, black jacket, you know, he's become, in my mind, Tandrigi man. And as we geographically put ourselves on the street and brought the seeds of the kingdom to the town, not that they weren't here already, don't misunderstand me, he, he lifted up his head. He straightened up and he looked up and he took notice of what was going on. 
we are the ones who are to help these people who are searching for a grave to look up and to see and feel the sun <laughs> shining on their faces. Father, I thank you for your word. These are, once again, difficult words, challenging words. But we invite your challenge, Holy Spirit, whether, whether we've walked with you for 20 years or whether we are on the dangerous ground of just coming every week and checking that the door's still open. Please come. Please, Holy Spirit, stir up that urgency in our hearts to respond to your word and to make every effort to get through that door that you have opened before us. And I pray for us as a church, as we see that picture of that woman bent over, staring at the ground, looking for a grave. Help us to see that everywhere around us. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and to be your voice that sets people free and straightens them up in the name of Jesus. Amen.